For those of you new to this, in Deuteronomy 8, chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10, uh, we are commanded to bless God after we eat, when we're satisfied and we will tend to forget God. It is a Christian habit and a habit of the sages, including our own master, to pray and bless God for the food. Not to bless the food, but to bless God for providing the food. But now, in obedience to the scripture, we will pick up on what's called the Birkat Hamazon, the blessing after the meal. On page 13, the first paragraph is done on days other than the Sabbath. The little square in the top right corner is done on the Sabbath. And I'm going to ask the venerable and getting older, Mr. Martin, if he would uh, start us off. A song of a sense, when and I will return to the captivity of Zion, we will be like dreamers, then our mouth will be filled with laughter and our tongue with glad song. Then they will declare among the nations, Adonai has done greatly with these, Adonai has done greatly with us. We will gladden, O Adonai, return our captivity like springs in the desert. Those who tearfully sow will reap in glad song. He who bears the measure of seeds walks along weeping, but will return in exultation, bearer of his sheaves. I'm starting in the paragraph below that. May my mouth declare the praise of Adonai, and may all flesh bless his holy name forever. We will bless God from this time and forever. Hallelujah. Give thanks to Adonai, for he is good, his kindness endures forever. Who can express the mighty acts of Adonai? Who can declare all his praise? Behold, I am prepared and ready to perform the positive commandment of Birkat Hamazon, for it is said, and you shall eat, and you shall be satisfied, and you shall bless Adonai your God for the good land which he gave you. Gentlemen, let us bless. Blessed be the name of Adonai from this time and forever. Blessed be the name of Adonai from this time and forever. Uh, do we still have time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. With the permission of the distinguished people present, let us bless our God, he of whose we have eaten. Blessed is our God, he of whose we have eaten, and through whose goodness we live. Blessed is our God, he of whose we have eaten, and through whose goodness we live. Blessed is he, blessed is his name. You just don't have a minion most of the time? Is that It's just kind of wimpy there. All right, so the first blessing comes up now, and I'm going to ask Mr. Wright if uh, he would give that to us. Never read so much in one day. Yeah, so I'd like you to do this in German. If you, No, no, it's all right. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, really. I only, know, I only know the one language. Yes. <laughs> okay, Hebrew works for me. No, I get it. Bless you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who nourishes the entire world in his goodness, with grace, with kindness, and with mercy. He gives nourishment to all flesh, for his kindness is eternal. And through his great goodness we have never lacked, and may we never lack nourishment for all eternity, for the sake of his great name, because he is God who nourishes and sustains all, and benefits all. And he prepares food for all of his creatures that he has created. As it is said, he opened your hand and satisfied the desire of every living thing. Bless you, Adonai, who nourishes all. Amen. 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 <laughs> On the uh, second blessing, I'm going to ask Mr. Bartos to uh, bring that home. We thank you, Adonai, our God, because you have given to our forefathers as a heritage a desirable, good, and spacious land, because you removed us, Adonai, our God, from the land of Egypt, and you redeemed us from the house of bondage, for your covenant that you sealed in our flesh, for your Torah that you taught us, and for your statutes that you made known to us. 
for life, grace, and loving kindness that you granted us, and for the provision of food with which you nourish and sustain us constantly in every day, in every season, and in every hour. I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and let you do the Anpuram blessing. Yeah. In the pink, right-hand side, page 15. Thanks for that. Gildroy! always right. I know it. I know, it's scary. I still want to do it even though Juliana says it's completely And for the miracles and for the salvation and for the mighty deeds and for the victories and the wonders and consolations. Where, 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 where are you? It all stops. It all starts at the, 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 the yeah. this little one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Get a little now, now right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever said I was right. And the battles that we performed for our forefathers in those days of those times. In the days of Mordecai and Esther in Shushan, the capital, Haman rose up against them and sought to destroy, to slay, and to exterminate all the Jews, young and old, infants and women, on the same day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. But you, in your abundant mercy, nullified his counsel and frustrated his intention and caused his design to return upon his own head. And they hanged him and his sons on the gallows. You performed a miracle and a wonder for them, and we shall give thanks to your name. Amen. Top of page 17, he will continue. For all I and I, our God, we thank you and bless you. May your name be blessed by the mouth of all the living, continuously and for all eternity. As was written, and you shall eat, and you shall be satisfied, and you shall bless Adonai, your God, for the good land that he gave you. Blessed are you, Adonai, for the land and for the earth. Amen. We're going to ask Mr. Alexander to bring it home with the arduous, tedious, and long blessing number three. Have mercy, we beg you, on our God, on Israel, your people, on Jerusalem, your city, on the resting place of your glory, on the monarchy of the house of David, your anointing, and on the great and holy house upon which your name is called. Our God, our Father, tend us, nourish us, sustain us, support us, believe us. And in our God, grant us speedy relief from all our troubles. Please make us not needful. And in our God, of the gifts of human hands are their loans, but only of your hand that is full, open, holy, and good. That we not feel inner shame nor be humiliated forever and ever. He is now going to take the first paragraph in pink because it's the Sabbath. May it please you, Adonai, God, give us rest through your commandments and through the commandment of the seventh day, this great and holy Sabbath. For this day is great and holy before you to rest on it and be content on it in love as ordained by your will. May your will, Adonai, God, that there be no distress, grief, or lament on this day of, your, of our contentment. And show us, Adonai, God, the consolation of you your city and the building of Jerusalem, the city of your holiness. You're the master of salvation, the master of consolation. He's now going to drop to the bottom of the page and bring it home. Rebuild Jerusalem, the city, the city, the holy city, soon in our days. Blessed are you, Adonai, who rebuilds Jerusalem in his mercy. Amen. And now for the fourth. Young and soon to be with child, Mr. Spurlock. We are with. The man, the man who will have the child with him and know what gender it is. Blessed are you. We're at the top of page 19 if you're following along. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, the Almighty, our Father, our King, our Sovereign, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Maker, our Holy One, Holy One of Jacob, our Shepherd, the Shepherd of Israel, the King who is good and who does good for all. For every single day he did good, he does good, and he will do good to us. He was bountiful with us, he is bountiful with us, and he will forever be bountiful with us. 
with grace and with kindness and with mercy, with relief, salvation, success, blessing, health, consolation, sustenance, support, mercy, life, peace, and all good. And of all good things, may he never deprive us. Now he is going to declare a title for our God. And we will respond with something about that. The Compassionate One. May He reign over us forever. The Compassionate One. May He be blessed in heaven and on earth. The Compassionate One. May He be praised throughout all generations. May He be glorified through us forever to the ultimate end. And be honored through us forever and for all eternity. The Compassionate One. May He sustain us in honor. The Compassionate One. May He break the yoke of oppression from our necks and guide us erect to our land. The Compassionate One. May he send us the abundant blessing upon this house, upon this table in which we have eaten. The Compassionate One. May he send us the lives of the prophet he has remembered for good, to proclaim to us good tidings, salvations, and consolations. Now you do the pink box for moi. May God's will that this house not be shamed or humiliated in this world or in the world to come. May he be successful in all his dealings. May his dealings be successful and conveniently close at hand. May no evil in heaven remember his handiwork, and may no semblance of sin or any of his thought attach itself to him from this time and forever. It's actually a selfish thing why I do this whole deal, although it is a commandment, and I'm glad for that. You all continue now. The compassionate one may bless my father's house, and house, and family, and all his heirs. That was shaky, but it was uh, a blessing. The compassionate one may he bless me, my wife, my children, my grandchildren. And all that is mine, ours and all that is ours, just as our forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were blessed in everything, from everything, with everything, so may he bless us all together with a perfect blessing, and let us say Amen. And Mr. Spurlock, can you bring it home at the top of page 21? On high, may merit be pleaded upon them and upon us for a safeguard of peace. May we receive a blessing from Adonai and just kindness from the God of our salvation and find favor and good understanding in the eyes of God and man. He's going to now do the first paragraph in the pink box. The compassionate one. May he cause us to inherit the day that will be completely a Sabbath and rest day for eternal life. He's going to drop down into the white again. The compassionate one. May he make us worthy of the days of Messiah Yeshua and the life of the world to come. He who is a tower of salvation, salvations to his king and does kindness for his anointed to David and, and to his descendants forever. He who makes peace in his heights, may he make peace upon us and upon all Israel. Now respond. Amen. Amen. Fear Adonai, you his holy ones, for there is no deprivation for his reverent ones. Young lions may want and hunger, but those who seek Adonai will not lack any good. Give thanks to Adonai, for he is good. His kindness endures forever. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Blessed is the man who trusts in Adonai. Then Adonai will be his security. I was a youth and also have aged, and I have not seen a righteous man forsaken with his children begging for bread. Adonai will give might to his people. Adonai will bless his people with peace. Amen. Thank you all. That's the Birkat Hamazon, I believe. Up now. Alexander, <laughs> Alexander, 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 I'll take the book. You can help Josiah, help Josiah. Here you go, here you go. You pick them up too, okay? Josh. But Grandpa's got some. I just want to there say, you go. oh, are you taking them? Oh, Very good job. Good. Nice job. Joshua, you need to watch him. Good it's, job, uh, Aaron. It's a problem, it's a problem. Good job. Because I derive pleasure from hearing all the kids chiming in in our Good job, Aaron. 
I think it's great to have them. Oh no, he's taking them off. I need yours now. Oh, I gotta pick up a now. So we have to pass. Different Aaron, we gotta put him away now. Good job, Aaron. Way to go, Aaron. So So Grant is gonna give us just a little, you know a little deal on the portion. And then I think Joshua's gonna come up and there's not that's no problem. There's not a lot of little kids for you to start with today, but... We had to put our sound in preparation. Yeah. That's fine. But we have Marianne. <laughs> she is young at heart like no one I know. That's very true. Come on up, Joshua. All right. Now let's do Tetzave. Tetzave. So it's appropriate that Joshua is doing this because he has the DNA of Aaron. Right. And there it is. This is what I've been told. We need something in the We keep saying that, but nobody hears us. I'm just trying to look at <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Gents, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Um, we will uh, kick off here. So yes, no, there's not... Um, we have some small ones who are missing, but that's okay. Some small ones are joining us today. Um, <clears throat> I thought it would be kind of interesting to talk about something that shows up a lot in this portion that is, I think stands out to me this year as being kind of unusual and how much focus that it gets. Um, but first off, I will, I'm going to engage one of the handful of, of people below bar mitzvah age at this point. Micah, question for you. Um, how would you define the word holy? Do you know what it means? Actually, a good answer. Well, it's a hard to define word. It can be kind of challenging. Josiah, do you know this one? Set apart. Very good. This is a man who's working at his bar mitzvah. There we go. Very, very good. So, Micah, what was maybe the bulk of the portion this week? What did we talk about almost more than anything else? Um, Priestly garments. garments. Very good. Now, what you might not realize as you're reading through this week's portion is that the priestly garments get made holy, which is kind of weird because towards the end of the, of the discussion of the priestly garments, it says you'll anoint the priestly garments and Aaron that you and the garments may be sanctified, that he and the garments may be sanctified. This stood out to me because I thought that's odd. Like, okay, we get the, the garments are part of the sanctification of Aaron, so it's for holiness, it's for uh, glory and for honor. Okay, fine. Um, the the uh, the people get sanctified by the anointing. That also makes sense. But the garments get made holy. Like that seemed kind of unusual. And they're almost like on the same level as Aaron. He has to be holy. The garments have to be holy. Almost as importantly, the garments help make him holy, which I thought was kind of interesting. So it got me thinking this week about clothes and, and realizing that um, in, the, in the portion, um, uh, Micah's correct, this is the bulk of the portion is about clothes, which if you think about it, is a lot of detail about clothes. Um, if you go through, the, one of the things we've, we've talked about some before is you can see some of the parallels between uh, the clothing of the high priest and the materials he makes use to make the tabernacles. They're almost like they're their own tabernacle to Hashem and that kind of, that cool imagery there. But beyond that, they're also, um, it's also amazing to see the amount of detail given to the garments. It's the same, basically, as that's given to the tabernacle itself. God spends a lot of time, it's very important to him. 
In fact, if you think about it, the very first like object, so to speak, that God gives to people is clothes. You get ready, they leave the garden. One of the very first things that God does is he clothes Adam and Eve with a garment. So as I'm thinking more about it, it's like well, clothes seem to be important to God. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there are, um, like God doesn't spend a lot of time laying out the, uh, a specific description of what clothes are good or not based like he does with Aaron. I mean, he has the detail here, right? So we don't get that. But there are some things, I think, that, um, that are good to, to have in mind, as some of which is interpretive and some of which I think is from the scripture. So obviously the first thing that comes up is modesty, how you dress and what you are displaying when you dress um, and what image you're presenting or not displaying, right? <laughs> and what image you're presenting when you dress uh, is important to God. This shows up in the apostolic writings. We get that a lot um, from time to time. Uh, it's important that way that you, a person dresses uh, reflect appropriately to God. I'm not going to give you a standard because God doesn't really provide a specific one, but God does say this is important. So it's something to keep in mind, be thinking about. Yes, sir? He does make it clear that a specific vocation has a specific garment. Mm. And we have the same thing in our culture. Right. Who's the policeman? He's the guy wearing the police suit. Right. Who's the fireman? He's the guy dressed like a fireman. Right. Well, and actually, think about it. One piece of clothing that he has mandated is yeah. the tzitzit. This is a piece of clothing, and you know what? It's the same thing you're talking about. Whenever I'm walking around uptown and I'm wearing these, Jewish people, it's like radar. I mean, the kippah is one thing, but it's like you're wearing this, they kind of know who you are. In fact, oddly enough, I feel like I get almost as many questions about these as I do about this one, because yeah. people have no idea what's going on down here, and it's a good opportunity to explain. But this is the one piece of clothing we can definitely say is a commandment for us to wear. And, um, but then, so I just started thinking about it and it's like, you know, maybe not so much that I have a standard to give because I don't, I think that, like I said, I think that God has a generic standard and then we have to interpret from that, what it's going to look like for us and to match the culture we're in. Even the rabbis would say that if you're dressed, if you're going to wear clothes in Scotland, you can wear a skirt. <laughs> if you're going to be somewhere else, maybe you shouldn't, you know, but that's kind of the idea. It's not a skirt. It's not a skirt. It's not a skirt. But and this is not a sword. And of course, <laughs> and the funny, and of course, the funny part. I remember one time I was in, I was at a, a preset ministries camp, and uh, they they pointed out that once upon a time, a long time ago, women wore pants and men wore what looked like dresses, and now we flip. So obviously, in some degree, is culturally defined. But um, but even just thinking about Shabbat, like it's not to say that you should dress up or dress relaxed, because I think both you do that. But why do you do it? You know, I wear a tie on Shabbat. Because that makes me happy. It makes me it makes me feel like I'm setting Shabbat separate. It's a way for me to look forward to that. You know, for my dad, who wears ties for work regularly, he intentionally wears blue jeans on Shabbat because he wants to set Shabbat apart and relax. And that's what I'm saying. It's not so much that um, I think that necessarily, by any means, I'm giving a standard. I mean, I think one of the things about this community that's really great is where God's word is vague, we try to be understanding. Amen. And, and we trust the men in the room to have done the research, to have seen how they should lead their families. That being said, um, I do think that as you read this portion, it's hard to escape the fact that clothes are important and that it's more than just something we use to cover up our skin and it's more than just something we use to keep warm, but it's something, it says something about who we are and it says something about the God that we serve um, and it's an important thing to keep in mind, uh, both not only with Shabbat but also day to day. On the issue of modesty, and usually when, when we speak of, in our culture, we speak of modesty, it's usually... We, we just we we oftentimes whether we intend to or not we imply feminine modesty 
Mm. We don't necessarily apply masculine modesty. Sure. This portion actually has has no mention of feminine modesty, but there's distinct right. masculine modesty involved here, not only in the pants, but in the apron itself for the, for the, for the high priest, because the apron is designed as a, as a means for modesty. Hmm. Uh, and as Rashi describes it, it's like a nobleman wearing a, a, uh, right. a apron when he rides a horse because, uh. because the, the way that you get men's on a horse. skirts have to be pulled up to get on the horse, you have to have covering of some sort. So right. the notion that, men, you know, female modesty is important, and the Bible does talk about it, but there's far more emphasis on male modesty than, mm. there, than there is female modesty in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so it does kind of go with both ways. But then also you have the, I mean, this is, of course, the invention of the boxer. I always thought that was so cool. You know, it's like God makes it very clear what we're, going, what we're, what we're doing with that. And I think that's... <laughs> no tidy whities Yeah, I know. Board shorts. <laughs> yeah, board shorts. Um, but it's just, it is amazing because uh, we even get this imagery a little bit beforehand when God's talking about the ascent to the altar and it needs to be on a, you know, on a ramp and not steps for the same reason. So God cares very much about, about modesty and, and it... Um, I think it's also a good reminder as you're reading through this portion, whatever these clothes, you know, clothes is a big deal here, is this is the, the reason why clothes is a big deal is because God is the king. I mean, I think as you read through the discussions of the tabernacle equipment and, and setup, I think the thing that things should be ringing in ears over and over again is God is king. You know, God is so holy and so majestic and so amazing that he is worthy of all of this fanfare and procession and to do and all this stuff. And I think sometimes, especially in the modern Christian culture, and even I think it's a trap for ourselves, it's so easy to read, you know, the, the Psalms and other parts of, of, of Scripture that make us feel that God is, is our loving Father and he cares so much about us. And he does. This is all true. But God is holy and God is king. And we can't forget that God is king. Um, uh, both in the way that we live and also the honor that we accord him. Yes, sir. Uh, this portion has four positive commands and three negative commands. And one of the negative commands is that the high priest is not allowed or no one is allowed to tear yeah. the robe. And if you were, I don't know your version, but the neckline of the robe is supposed to be made like chain mail to make sure that we don't get any of that happening. Uh, and of course, um, some misinterpretation of the apostolic scriptures um, has been used to lead people to believe that the priesthood is over. Right. Because the high priest at that day, there were many, but one of them, <laughs> which is oh, oh, already, already a problem. Already a problem, <laughs> right? But one of the high priests of that day, when he heard the master's comment or answer to one of the questions tore his garment right and for any that would buy into that well this causes the priesthood to be destroyed because he tore the garment that can never be torn the unterrible garment it's not kevlar we're told not to tear it but this garment that you read about today is only worn one day a year this is what the high priest wears on that day and if he were to wear it any other day, I, you know, it's fine. He can't do the service. Well, it's also the location. Right. It's I mean, there's no question he was not performing the service. He was in the Sanhedrin listening to counsel. There's no way he was wearing these garments. Right. So to think that he tore an unterrible garment and therefore somehow took an eternal priesthood and now there's no priesthood. <laughs> just really doesn't bear up under any 
type of scrutiny. And this is where we would, or they would get, you can't tear this thing. We know it's also cool, though. I think I'm glad you brought to the apostolic writings because when I read that this week, what I thought of was Yeshua's garment. So when he's on the cross right. and they're divvying up his garments, they get to this robe of some sort that he's got, and it's without seam. And they don't want to just, you know, here you have an arm, you have a, you know, a, a, a chunk of cloth here. It's so valuable because it's made with, without a seam. It's not easily terrible that they gamble for it. And this, of course, fulfills the prophecy in the Psalms. But I think it's more than just fulfilling the prophecy. I, I think there is kind of almost like a priestly reference there. As, as our high priest, um, Mashiach definitely has that illusion. And I think it's important to remember when we're reading through the apostolic writings, and if you have not been listening online, um, encourage you to do so or attend in presence if, you are a, if you're a man um, coming to Zadi class because we're discussing the apostolic writings. And one of the beautiful things about the apostolic writings is they have a lot of this imagery and allusions to the Tanakh. It does not necessarily mean that we have to like you know, I, I think it's important when you talk about anything in the scriptures. Allusions don't mean it is. It means it's talking about it. So it's like, it's not like, you know, we're not saying that Yeshua really was wearing the high priest garments. That's, you know, I think it's a, a leap that's completely wrong. So instead, though, the, the allusion to it, though, I think is important because God's trying to paint this picture. Um, yes, sir. Since you're talking about the outside scriptures, one of the interesting things is in the, in the uh, uh, Gutnik Kumash, they make a point, and it, it should have been obvious anyway, but they make a point about the fact that this is all about garments. And then we talk about an altar. Why wasn't that golden altar mentioned last week? Right, right, right. Instead, the golden altar is put in this week. And how does that pertain to these garments? And the interesting thing is, Orchaim makes the comment that any part of the tabernacle that was suitable to use, suitable for use in the Holy Temple, the tabernacle versus the Holy Temple, in Jerusalem was permitted to be used there on a permanent basis. An exception to this rule is the golden altar, which despite the fact that its function did not change in the temple, was nevertheless required to be replaced. And what it reminds me of is the people who denigrate the apostolic scriptures oftentimes do so because of apparent discrepancies. Hmm. And in the book of Hebrews, one of those apparent discrepancies is discussed. And it says in Hebrews 9, uh, starting in verse 1, now, even the first had regulations, talking about the tabernacle, had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section of which, in which were the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence. This is last week's portion, right? Mm -hmm. It is called the holy place. Behind the second person, curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn, holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. So people read this and go, the writer of Hebrews is an idiot. Because you can see clearly in the Torah, you know, that that the altar of incense is be, is in front of the curtain, not behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. It's not in the Holy of Holies, it's in the holy place. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't and so what you what you what you get was as you read this portion in the Greek it's very it's not as clear as in the English that our translator said this. This says the altar that pertains to the most holy. Mm -hmm. And the point was the altar of incense's purpose, its purpose had to do with Yom Kippur. Its mm -hmm. primary right. purpose had to do with Yom Kippur and the Holy of Holies, which is exactly what our portion does. It places the altar of incense and that high priestly garment, which was only worn, except for inauguration day when you right. were brand new high priest, right. it was only worn on Yom Kippur. 
only a person deeply steeped. Right. Not in just Jewish things, but priestly, even high priestly things would have the courage to write it that way. Otherwise, and this is validation of the apostolic scripture, otherwise you'd smooth it over. You wouldn't say it in a way that, be, that could be, that looks like you're a counterfeit. You try to make it match, which is one of the things that we have learned in the apostolic scriptures are proof of validity, not proof, not proof of mm-hmm. uh, invalidity. Mm-hmm. In other words, when you have discrepancy, it means that you should pay attention because if we were trying to fake it, we'd do a much better job right. with the Book of Mormon. We'd have made it all match. Right. Right? Right. Instead, the writers didn't make it match. They just wrote it exactly the way that God told exactly. them to write it. Right. And the writer of Hebrews intimately knows the priesthood. And that's one of the things, if you, as you read... As you, just oh, real go ahead. quick, just to plug, because he won't do it. If you haven't done uh, the Hebrews study at Koreans Online, which Rick wrote, you are missing out on an incredible opportunity to see, as we're going to be talking about in two weeks in the Tariq class, uh, about some problems with the English version of our Bibles. And I would argue um, that the book of Hebrews has the most English problems with regard to tenses of, of words and trying to push a particular theology and so forth. And it's unfortunate. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think the Bible was like that. but. Um, to get a very unemotional, very black and white look at it, that Hebrews is life-changing. And uh, I'll go ahead and plug a, a thing that hadn't even happened yet, and that's the class uh, a week from this Tuesday, where we go through the word ecclesia hmm. versus kirchen. Uh, church. Uh, church in, uh, in the apostolic scriptures. So. Not a Greek word. Not a Greek word, yeah. And, and that's the thing, one of the things is you're reading through the scriptures, um, keep in mind... the. Uh, the apostolic scriptures are oftentimes treated as the intro level to the Bible. They really should be treated as the advanced class. That's right. Because the intro level of the Bible is what we're reading now. Well, it's the reason why it's at the beginning. Like, God starts with the story of how they become his people. He continues to talking about the commandments that we're supposed to do, and then how we get the land. And the rest of it builds off of that. And mm-hmm. as you get into the apostolic scriptures, as we've done over the last um, 15, 16 weeks, weeks yeah. um, you start to find that if you don't know this, you won't even understand that because so much of the things that they're saying, the writings of writers are getting at, is buried in the scripture. You have to, as, as my dad was pointing out, you have to intimately know the stuff. You have to be able to look at the pieces and say, I know what that, what that idiom means. I know where the context is. We read today from the book of Hebrews, and we'll talk about it hopefully a little bit towards the end here. Um, again, other, there's, there's easily to misinterpret some stuff, but the writer of Hebrews is, as my dad points out, is not just alluding to the Tanakh, the, the, apostol- the, the writings prior to the apostolic scriptures, but is actually alluding to what we would call today rabbinic interpretations Tradition. of the Tanakh. He knows what they're trying to say Intimately. because he, he learned it. Yes, well, as, as, as pointed out, what I read was a rabbinic tradition. The reason why this is separate, it, obviously it's man's interpretation. We don't know why this scripture has the golden altar all in a talk of clothes. All of a sudden it talks right. about the golden altar, and then it moves on. It's like, what was that all about? And so anything that looks out of place, we, re- we immediately go, there's a reason why it's out What's of place. What's bothering Rashi? There's supposed, something we're supposed to get from this. 
And the writer of Hebrews picks up on that exact same tradition. That's right. right. Yeah, it's very cool. Very cool. Speaking of rabbis, um, Juliana this past week was uh, reading some stuff or re- listening to some stuff from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Um, he's a cool, he's the chief rabbi of England. Um, very interesting, very interesting, interesting person. Um, and had some comments that Juliana was relaying back to me this morning about the brotherhood thing. So she, he points out that there's all these rivalries in the Bible. Um, and they, oddly enough, seem to get, brotherhood rivalries seem to get better over time. You start off, well, at least earlier reconciliation, maybe. So you have, you have Cain and Abel. That doesn't end well. Then uh, Isaac and Ishmael doesn't go so well, but ends, ends well. Um, Jacob and Esau definitely was pretty bad, but they technically reconcile before uh, Isaac and Ishmael sort of do, a little earlier. Um, Je- Joseph and his brothers, very good. That ends nicely, um, even though that gets really rough at the beginning. But the brothers that are the, they are like the creme of the creme. The top shelf are Moses and Aaron. And this week, and I hope you notice as you're reading through it, to think about, one of the things you love to talk about is be there. Hear the sound, smell the smell. What is it like to have been there for this? Think about being Moses or Aaron. And you realize that this experience for the two of them, they both have reason to be jealous of the other. Aaron is the older brother. For those of you who might forget this, if you go back earlier in the story, he's the oldest. I am an older brother. And as an older brother, I like to be first. I like to be the one who's kind of in charge. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's sometimes not, it's not a struggle. It's, a, it's humbling, I think, whenever you need a younger brother to show you how to do something. That's, that's not easy. Um, uh, the um, we like to joke. If you're a firstborn, you feel like you must be the best because you were there first. You know, so obviously. That's not a joke. You really believe. I know. That's the, the. What makes it funny is that so many firstborns think that. I don't know. Anyway. Um, just remember, he can kill you with his bare. I know he can. It's often true. Well, but it's not a lack of respect. Don't get me wrong. I don't. I don't. I. I respect him very much. Um, but wait until where do you go? Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> he's killing someone with his hands. Yeah, probably. But the, he's sharpening them. <laughs> but the uh, the the point that I'm getting at is that as the oldest brother, Aaron probably found this whole experience really humbling, or he would have, because Moses is the one in charge. He's the one administering the garments. He's the one administering the anointing oil. He's the spokesperson for God. I mean, Aaron has definitely taken second tier in this relationship. But on the flip side, think about it from Moses' perspective. So Moses does all the hard work. He goes back to Egypt. He does the plagues. He deals with all the children of Israel's complaining. He brings them back to Sinai, where God said, I will bring you back to this place. He's there. Everything's great. He goes up to the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, God says, by the way, about the whole priest thing, yeah, you're not going to be the priest. What? Like, Moses is everything. Moses is the, this, the top shelf of every category. He is prophet, priest, and king. Now, priest, you're going to have one day. And after that, the only one that's going to be priest is Aaron. Oh, and your sons? No, they have no shot. They're a completely separate category. They got no involvement here. Aaron, the entire priesthood is going through him. And you got to lift him up and wait. And <laughs> I know, right? But, so think about it, is they both have reason to be disappointed and jealous. But you know what's amazing? What's the reference to how goodly it is for brothers to dwell and be together in unity? They compare it to the oil coming off of Aaron's beard. What is that? That's what we're reading about in this portion. It's the anointment of Aaron as priest. Because in that moment, when he was being anointed as priest, two brothers put their expectations 
their station aside to serve God and to be united. Moses is happy to anoint Aaron. Aaron is happy to be anointed by Moses. These two men find that. And so I believe that God uses that reference because that is the perfect picture of unity. It's one thing from brothers to be together when they have no reason to, to, to disagree. But here we have really, I would say, legitimate reasons to be a little perturbed at the whole way things are playing out. But it's that moment they find the greatest symbols of unity. I've got him and then, and then over here. You said I was going to say. Oh, I do that so much. He's done such a good job. He did an even better job. Oh. <laughs> I hate when I take your words because I want to hear what your words would have been. I, I was just going to reference the, the beard, the oil thing. Um, and speaking as an older brother, it, it, is, uh, it is, if you can set aside what I'm, I'm assuming Aaron did, which was he probably chose to take pride in the fact that his young brother was capable of doing this. Mm-hmm. And doing all these things because if you if, if you have brothers you know, younger than you, they're better at you than something, the best way to do that is to be proud of them being better at you. True, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm very proud of my youngest brother. He has gotten his black belt in karate recently, <laughs> which I can't do any of. Um, I, I um, and then of course we had a chance to run the Spartan race about a year ago, and it was really great to go together. And he's definitely stronger than me, so he needs help on occasion. Um, but it was really great. It was a great experience to be there with him. So I, I hear what you're saying. Yes, sir. Uh, that, that was a great article from Robert Jonathan Sachs. The other thing that he quoted was the Pirkei vote that says, who is one that is honored? One who gives honor. Mm. So that defined Moshe. Right, yeah, that's true. That, and that's exactly right. Aaron, don't misunderstand this, but Aaron's a moron at first. I mean, he participated in the, in the cooling. <laughs> so the fact, and, and everything that Aaron's going to be doing and has his son doing, Moses has to tell him how to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, I mean, so, I mean, it was really something for Moses to humble himself, and he yeah. is the one. Yeah. Right. Humbled himself right. and really elevated Aaron. And Aaron, of course, rises to the occasion. And we all hold Aaron in such high regard because, because God really did a great work through him. But Moses is the one that set him up for that by humbling himself. Well, and one of the things that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out is they quote, he was from the psalm that says, Mercy and justice have kissed. So Aaron and Moses are traditionally associated with those respective justice. qualities. Aaron is merciful and and uh, and peace loving is his big quality. In fact, there's some people who would say that the reason for the whole golden calf catastrophe he was trying to is that it. he was trying to delay, kind of like, but he didn't want the conflict. He was trying so hard to avoid the conflict. He wasn't trying to compromise, but he did. Moses, on the other hand, Moses is tough as nails. You know, he's strong. He's just. He's true. This is the way it has to be done. Who's the perfect guy to give the law? But then Aaron and Moses together, and we see that unity here, this is, this is God's full nature because he's both. And he finds a way to perfectly balance those. And these two men work together to do that in, in, as leaders of this community. Uh, and it's really beautiful to see, to see them work together. Uh, also, as we, go, as we go through this portion and, and talk about some of the things, I thought one of the things I thought was cool, um, some Hebrew words, just some fun stuff for you. Um, so you see the word like an engraving, like an engraving stone. Um, the word there, if I remember correctly, is related to, um, isn't it similar to one of the words for the commandments? It has something to do similar to that. More importantly, another word that I definitely know is true, is talking about the, the weaver's craft. So the word for craft there is chashav. Well, I mean, when I was in Israel, I got a chance to study some modern Hebrew, and chashav is a word they use for think. So it's like the, the way the weaver thinks, right? The weaver's development. What's funny is, in modern Hebrew, they make the word computer is machshav, is the thinking machine. Huh. It's the thing that thinks. Um, 
And so you get this idea that like God has put in these people a way to think. Which is also like literally what it is in English as well. Computer, something that computes. Computes. Right. Are we talking about Picudet? Yeah, yeah. Picudet are engraved are great engraved instructions. Basically, right. they're the king's instructions. They're engraved. They're he's doomed because he's the king. Right, which is you get that word in this one. He says that's like an engraving stone. Very cool. Um, I, I do want to get a little bit of time over in the Haftarah, but we have time to, if other people have comments from the Torah portion itself. Yes, sir. Just real quick, uh, when uh, Jonathan and his family got here, we were talking about the sash, and according to the sages, the sash was 48 feet long. Whoa! Which is twice across this room, which is 24 feet. And I realized... You can't put that on by yourself. <laughs> Someone's going to have to help you. And as Rick was pointing out at uh, only of time, you know, you pretty much hold it here and start turning. And your friend is just kind of holding on to it. Um, and it would, I mean, 48 feet, I don't care how big you are, that's going to cover you layers thick. And it's um, not silk, that's right. So it's going to be thick. It is going to be thick. Yeah. And, I, I mean, bear with me. I, I know... I'm a little over the top, and I know I'm weird this way. But the only thing that kept going through my head as I'm reading what this guy's putting on is he's got multiple layers of a thick fabric. Potentially, I don't know, 7, 10, 12 layers thick just in the front. And then he's got a 9-inch by 9-inch metal square hanging in front of his heart this guy is virtually bulletproof. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. But it didn't work for for uh, for Aaron's first two songs. Yeah, well, well, that bulletproof. Well, that not, wasn't a bullet. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yes, sir. I not think, fireproof. I think anyone who has worn a uniform can attest to the fact that when you put something that complicated on, you yeah. feel set apart. You do. That's, That's true. true. And you are. And and you are. And it changes your attitude. Um, they, I, I read one time that they were doing a study that people, two groups of people take a test, one group wearing a lab coat, one not, and the people with the lab coat tested better, average. And I, I think that's the whole point, and I think Joshua touched on this earlier, which is clothing is important, and, yeah. and God's using it here to set, set them apart. And not only to set them apart from people looking at them, but the person wearing it feels set apart. Yeah. yeah, and that's true. I mean, I think even for myself, you know, I, um... You, uh, you know, there's certain, I remember I was getting a, I, when I was uh, looking for a job and whatnot, try to make some income before we got married, um, spent some time working in retail at Staples. Even there, you walk in, and I've been talking to the manager, and he's like, some of my interviews last 20 seconds. Kid walks in with sandals and shorts and a t-shirt on, it's over. You just know the guy is not taking this seriously, immediately, just based on the way that he's dressed. So yeah, it, it says a lot. It's not only for you, but it also speaks volumes to people around you and how seriously you're taking the situation or how you know appropriately relaxed you are. You can overdress as well, but the point is that like how you look does say something about how you view what's going on. So I, actually, can I come back to you or are you in the same topic? Yeah, go ahead. Well, so we had a, uh, the, the blessing to be at the Temple Institute last week. Yeah. Hey. And see like all this stuff. Whoa. And it was really interesting because like I guess one of the things... You know, it's, I'm, I'm just such a visual person, and one of the things that I was really surprised by was once all of these vestments were kind of put on, all of the images that you have of like the king.
king of Egypt or the king of Persia mm -hmm. or like all these other kings, they're a lot more ostentatious than these oh. garments. Okay. Like these, they're, they look, I mean, just because the bulk of it is the white linen tunic, you know, and so you've got the high priest that's ah, got true. the fode, which is, it's very beautiful, but it is kind of small compared to the rest of all this white that he's wearing. And so the thing that I just was really struck by this time around, like actually seeing these things was this isn't about being showy. You know, like right. this is about what Hashem wants from like a purity standpoint. Like I just, I, you see, you could picture. You know, they have paintings in the in the museum of, of what it would have been like when the temple stood, and it's like a sea of white. That's where all the co the, cool. the the priests are wearing. Are this is beautiful white linen. You know, but I mean, they, it could have been like very kingly with tons of gold and big uh, lots of jewelry everywhere, and you know, big scepters and everything. But it wasn't like that at all. Right. It was it was fairly fairly subdued compared to other other kings, I guess, of, of other countries. And, and I think that speaks volumes of what Hashem really is after. He's not after you thinking like, wow, that's so flashy, I need to listen. It's like, mm -hmm. wow, that's so pure and holy, you know, and there's reasons behind everything. But yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned modesty earlier, and modesty of men, you know, and one thing Judaism is careful about is not being ostentatious. Like there is a, um, that's not to say that you don't dress and be close to your station, but the idea being that like you want to be careful on how much you're displaying, so to speak, from what you have and whatnot, they uh, they they pull a, an illusion from one of the kings of Israel, he um, Hezekiah, who invites the Babylonians in to come tour all the wealth that they have, and then Isaiah <laughs> shows up, one of the prophets, and they're like, "You gave away the store! Like now, now they're going to come back and they're going to steal all the stuff that you showed them." So and they did, and they did. So it's important to be careful, um, and, and even in a in a, in a modesty book, it's interesting because we talk about female modesty. Most of the references in the apostolic scriptures are actually more to ostentatious type stuff. Mm -hmm. It's not so much the belly, you know, showing. Although maybe they weren't dealing with that then. But the point is that like it is it is a physical modesty, but it's also like trying to make sure that um, I don't know. It's about like I talked about earlier. You can be overdressed. I guess it's the, kind of the point there, and being careful in what you're displaying and the image that you're providing. Um, but I see I've got my dad, and then and then over here. Well, I mean, you wore a uniform. I wear a uniform, and it, it there's there's the two there's the two parts of the uniform. The one part is the public view of the uniform is is about representing both position of authority and also representing a larger than you. Mm -hmm. So when I put my uniform on, and actually I teach I teach human factors uh, some every month, but to other pilots. And one of the things we select to talk about the uniform is a matter of professionalism. And part of it is most most pilots understand that the uniform is about a public persona. So they see, the public sees you in the uniform, they understand a certain level of respect, a certain level of authority that goes with it, but also you're a representative of the airline that you work for. Mm -hmm. and, but in the time of danger, it takes a completely different meaning. It used to be, and it doesn't happen so much before, but now, but in, you know, 20, 30 years ago, every pilot had a hat. Every pilot wore a uniform hat. And the reason why was because the uniform hat was part of the uniform, but in a time of danger, people would go to the hat. People ah. will listen to the hat. So that what they would say when you come out of the flight deck in an emergency accident or whatever else, you put your hat on first. Makes sense. So and and it's one of the reasons why even though all airline pilots don't wear hats, I wear a hat. And the reason why is because for that very reason, it is a sense of modesty for me. I fly with a ball cap, but when I people see me, I have a I have a uniform hat on. But the most important thing about the uniform, and this goes back to the same thing with the military uniform, it's not just what other people say. It's much more important for you. That's right. And the priest, it says it's for glory. It says, put this on for glory. Put this on for glory, and this represents glory, whatever else. 
and it doesn't the Torah doesn't tell us who's getting the glory. Mm-hmm. And it, if you read it just quickly, you might get the idea that the priests, and as you adequately described, the priest doesn't look that flashy. So it's not about his glory. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with the uniform. When we put the uniform on, we put on a, a level of professionalism. We I ask pilots when they're in rooms and, they, and the doors close, we just talk about pilots. Has anybody ever flown a big jet with jeans on? And a couple people raise their hands because they have fairing aircraft or whatever else. And I said, was it weird? And they'll always say it was weird. <laughs> it was totally weird. In fact, they'll oftentimes say it wasn't safe. Huh. It's a really interesting thing. So putting the uniform on frames our own minds. So putting the priestly garments on frames the priest and the high priest's mind to understand they don't represent themselves. Hmm. That they are putting on the holiness of Almighty. So when we put on the uniform of our master, we're not just reflecting ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're reflecting, we're reflecting mm-hmm. him. And we should be content with that mm-hmm. and glory in it. Yeah, absolutely. So to that point, um, in, in the Gutnik, uh, they talk about the sash because it seems to be the only thing that doesn't have a function. Oh, okay. It's surely not to hold up your pants. Right. <laughs> it ain't to hold on the apron. Right. It's not to add something. Yeah. So rather, the uniqueness of the sash is expressed precisely, and this is beautiful dovetail, in the fact that it has no specific function. It thus represented the general readiness of the priest to perform God's service. In the spirit of the verse out of Amos 4, prepare to greet your God, O Israel. The multiple winding of the sash around the body thus prepared the priest mentally (laughs) with a total readiness to stand before God in service. He's putting on the uniform, and it's not, it's no longer about him. I'm mentally ready. So if it takes that long to put on, it, it'll gonna, get you mentally you got, ready. You've got time to get, to get mentally ready, yeah. 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 Um, what did I do? It looks like your New Zealand tech was just in your garage or something, which is like kind of funny. I think that we, uh, we were discarding a Heart, and he chose ah. to ask us to redeem it. Ah, gotcha. Um, so a couple shekels, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, but the, the point of the uniform. I remember um, Wells Fargo has a, has a rule where you're allowed to wear blue jeans on Fridays. That's the only day you can. And of course, and then there's certain special oh, occasions they let you. But um, Mr. Martin's practice is not to do that. He always wears slacks. Um, and the reason for that is being in compliance. His goal was to try to again kind of maintain that. You know, that seriousness, you know, like I'm the one who you come to for the rules, you know. I want to look like someone who has authority, who has the ability to tell you this is right, this is wrong, whatever. What I think is really cool about the fact that he does that is it made such a lasting impression that when I started working, the guy interviewing me, who doesn't work for him, um, but was like a friend of his or whatnot at the, at the bank, told me about that habit, which he had also adopted. So unless I'm usually going out right after on a trip or if, you know, I'm going to a movie or something right during the day or whatnot, I almost never wear blue jeans on Fridays in honor of that. So you see that, you yeah. see that uh, multi-generational faithfulness, That's so to right. speak. <laughs> but what's cool about that is you think about, like, so Aaron, as the leader, is also setting an example. By dressing the way that God has wanted him to, he's not only giving an impression, but as to your point, um, he's dressing, and, and also to Greg's, he's dressing the way that God wants him to. So just by his clothing, he's saying, I do to the letter exactly what God has said, and other people are seeing that, and they're drawing off that. Yes, sir. And even to that point, like all of the really nice things that are on the, the high priest, 
they don't have the high priest's name on it. It's all other people's names. <laughs> the amazing right. headplate that's, that's made of solid gold has Hashem's name on it. Right. All of the precious stones he's wearing have all of that's the names good. of Israel on it. So it's like nothing that he's wearing really belongs to him. No ID right. tag on that guy. That's, that's, right. Right. that's right. right. No name So I do want to briefly touch on the Haftarah, if we're in a good place to do that. Um, so we're over off in Samuel. And hang on, find the Did reference again. But did you want to make a reference? You did them for us, right? Thank yeah. you for doing it. Actually, I appreciate it. Juliana read, read the I read all the Esther specific ones to me as we were driving in the car. Um, uh, so I appreciate her help with that. Um, but yeah, the the um, this week's Haftarah is all about Amalek, and there's a double reason for that. So first off. Amalek, of course, is who we were remembering to wipe out so we can forget about them. Yeah, well, that's what's funny. It's not so much remember to forget. It's remember to make it so everyone else forgets, basically, to wipe out the memory of Amalek. Um, and I think that this is, this is very important because um, it, there's a tradition as to what, what did Amalek do? For those of you who might not be familiar with this, what did, why is Amalek like the worst of the worst? Because of vultures. Yeah, yeah, right. But see, like, like Esau, like Edom is actually the father of Amalek, but Edom gets a different level. Like, God does not like the Edomites. They betrayed Israel. They, they, they turned out Israel at the Babylonian captivity. They, like, helped the Babylonians attack Israel for no reason. They're the brothers, so it's, like, completely not okay. God has rules, and God in Obadiah talks about, I'm going to wipe out Edom. He promises to do that. But Amalek is different. And Amalek gets a special set-apart. They're the worst of the worst. And, and I think the, and the reason the sages ask this question, why? What they say is that Pharaoh goes head-to-head -head with the people of Israel. He believes he is also a god. He believes he can take on the god of Israel, and he fights them head-to-head. -head. He is rebellious and stubborn and whatever else, and God defeats him. That was a sin. That was wrong. But there's almost like a, an honor, an honor a, a respect of the fact that you, you, you viewed us as a legitimate opponent. Nice in battle. Right. Amalek... Is the opposite. Amalek sneaks Sneaky. up. He comes out. He he takes exactly. out the weaklings. But the sages have a cool, and I think insightful tradition on this. They say that what Amalek's desire it was more than just that he took out the weak ones. His goal was to make God look bad. So this is after the Red Sea. All of the nations. If you read that the Song of the Sea we read earlier, all the nations around are freaking out because oh my goodness, the most powerful nation in the world just got defeated by God and the people of Israel. So the people of Israel are like, they are walking on air. Everyone around them is really afraid of them. And in this moment of, of, of sanctification, Amalek says, I am going to prove that God is not as powerful as he looks. I will shame God by attacking the weak ones, what I'm pretty sure I can take out. So he attacks them specifically to attack the name of God. So God's response, I mean, I think... Um, I remember as a, as a kid, I remember a very, as a young, young man, um, one time, uh, an older boy decided to pick on me. It was kind of rough to me. You know, we were in the bathroom or something else, and, you know, he pushed me. I can't remember what it was now. It said something nasty to me, whatever else. My mom found out. She found this little, you know, 12-year-old punk, and she made it very clear that he would never touch her son ever again. And that's kind of the same way. I can't imagine I know, right? Um, it's kind of the same way that I think God sort of takes on here. You know, God's like, this was not okay. 
God has made it very clear that it's not okay. But I think it's important that God uses the people of Israel in this role. It's not just that God's going to fight Amalek. He will. But he specifically wants Israel to be a part of it. He wants Israel to help restore, so to speak, not that God's glory would ever be diminished by man, but to reestablish in time and space that God is supreme by being the ones to attack. So um, this story here... Oh, go ahead. Well, I, just while you're telling the story, I don't, I don't remember why we're reading about Amalek this week. Oh, okay, so there's two things. First off, so this is with Parshat Zakor, so we're talking about Amalek. But the reason why, this is what I was going to get to, this is why this story in particular, this story that we're holding this week, is so important. Tonight, Purim. And if you do the genealogical research and realize there's some odd things going on. So number one, Haman. <laughs> why do we do that? He's a Naga guy. He's, <laughs> he is from... Agag, an Agagite, who is the king of Amalek. So when, for those of you who may have seen the movie One Night with the King, um, it's, it takes some liberties, but cool film. Most importantly, it starts with this story. Because the point they're trying to show is that this is a generational blood feud. The Amalekites are the enemy of Israel. Israel's supposed to wipe them out. Saul fails, lets the king survive for at least one, one night. Um, and he gives a descendant who becomes Haman, who comes back to wipe out, or try to wipe out the people of Israel. Just goes back to reinforce the idea that you really should finish what you start. But um, in this case... Uh, Don't poke the lion. Right? Don't do that. <laughs> but what's also beautiful is if you do the reverse genealogy. So the, so the one side we're reading this week because Purim, Purim, Esther, is about God defeating Amalek, who comes back to try to defeat Israel. So the, the story is a beautiful presentation of God on behalf of his people, uh, which we'll see as really the Megillah. But then also, Mordecai is a descendant from Benjamin, Benjamin same tribe as Saul. And I think he actually well, he's a descendant of descendant Saul. And along the way, Mordecai's, one of Mordecai's ancestors actually curses David. But David doesn't kill him then. He has mercy and compassion on him because he says, you know what, I, I, was kind of a, I was kind of a loser the way that I handled Absalom, so I kind of get why this guy's cursing me. Let him be for now. Now, he does have a point telling Solomon, take care of that guy. But the point is um, that he... I couldn't do it, you do it. But the point is, though, that that mercy ends up becoming Mordecai. So on one side, we see an inappropriate expression of mercy. That's what I talked about earlier, just as the mercy kiss. Sometimes mercy's not okay. Sometimes it's the ultimate virtue. So you see, on the one hand, Saul blatantly defies God. That doesn't work so well. We end up with Haman. But then David ultimately exhibits that, that, that God-like mercy to forgive is divine. Um, and as a result, you end up with Mordecai. So these two rivals are basically from the same origins, so to speak, but they go back here. This is the story. So that's why we read this story. That's why Amalek is important this week, and that's what we're getting into. Yes, Jeremiah. I know. <laughs> I'm like my dad. I like call you Jeremiah, whatever. I didn't call you Janet. That was good. He didn't, he didn't call you Joshua. That's good. Uh, that was, that was good. I was actually calling Aaron, I think, Zoe at one point. It's just like, oh my goodness, I'm doing it already. I don't even have kids, and I'm already calling They're all confused. Yes, Peter. Anyway, uh, that reminds me, there was a, there was a story about um, there was a soldier in World War One who spared one of the random German soldiers. 
and they became friends in a way, as much as you could be friends with your enemy. And they were, you know, the friends and everything. There was a painting of them. The guy's name was, uh, the British one was Tundi, I believe. And uh, that German got older, and in the 30s, that German that he spared was Adolf Hitler. So it was like kind of that Oops. same kind of thing. It's like wrong mercy. You, sh you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> well, <laughs> well somebody you mentioned that. Mustache should have given him away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He had a bigger one. <laughs> yes. So it's reading through this. Saul, I think, oh, yes, sir, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that uh, I, I thought it was kind of curious that in the story, we see that Saul, he, he tries to get out of it. He's a weenie. Yes, yeah, his whole <laughs> a big weenie. Yeah, his whole presentation is is, is oh oh yeah you, well of course you hear animals because we save those to make sacrifice to God sure That's liar right? what a politician I know right yeah right um, but it's interesting we just read in this portion that that robe needs to be made and never torn for the high priest and here. The robe gets torn. Gets torn. Well, that's Samuel, so Samuel's not technically that. I guess. It has nothing to do with yeah. that. It's yeah. just, you've got. Look at the imagery. Don't tear this. Look, this gets torn. And Samuel yes. uses the, you know, right. the, even the sound, turns around and looks and goes, nah, he's torn the kingdom out of your hands. So Rashi does a cool little. Oh, go ahead. No, I mean, did you blowing? Okay, well, so Rashi does a cool little story off of that. He, he points out that the garments get ripped, and then he says, this is how Saul knew that David would be king. So when they're, if you remember the story, they're out, they're out in the wilderness, um, mm -hmm. probably actually not too far from where you guys were last week in Engedi. They're in a cave. Gotta go potty. Yeah, Saul, Saul's gonna find some privacy, goes in a cave, and doesn't realize that David and all his men are in there. And his guys are all like, dude, this is your chance, go and take him out. And David's like, I cannot harm the anointed one. So he goes up and he takes off a sliver of his robe, cuts it off, then walks out with it and like, did you forget this? And and Saul's response is, um, you know, is that toilet paper on your shirt? Yeah. <laughs> Saul's response is, now I know that you will be king, or something to that effect. And the Rashi's point is that Saul saw this as a prophecy. Yeah. He saw this tearing of the garment as a statement. And in fact, they go on to say that when 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 he says, no no no, forgive me, forgive me, and Samuel says, God will not 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 relent. Um, it's not that God was refusing to forgive Saul so much. I mean, that's, I mean, Saul has crossed the line, you know, no coming back from that. But he also is saying, more importantly, I've promised to give the kingdom now to someone else. I'm not going to revoke that promise just because now you feel bad. And I think that's important as well. I think about, you know, we've got some people who think, seem to think that God's promises to his people are, are revocable. Um, Paul makes a point, also named as Shaul, well named, um, makes a point of saying God doesn't do that, and and that's also what we're getting here. Yes, sir. Well, just Saul's uh, response and and like how, why his reasoning behind not <coughs> obeying God is I mean something that I think all of us kind of struggle with because his whole thing is like yeah the, the point about the offerings right and I, it, harkening back to this week's portion I kept thinking like at any point you know Moshe could have said. Uh, God said we need to make all these garments out of linen, but I was thinking silk. You know, that's a little bit nicer. Or, you know, at any point, anyone could have, you know, at Moshe or Aaron could have replaced what God had said with what they thought was actually going to be the better right. way to do it. Right. 
And, but the, the point, I think, of studying the portions like this one this week that are just filled with, with lots of minutia about how the tabernacle and how the priestly garments and everything should be is that God has his way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, mm-hmm. he's got the final say. And he's whatever king. he says, we should do. And it was, uh, it was, it's definitely reading how Saul tries to explain himself just definitely made me realize how many times I've done that myself, right. where you, you try to justify doing something that wasn't exactly what God said because you think there's a better way to do it or you, you find some kind of loophole in how inappropriate that is. Yeah, exactly right. And I think that Saul here, one of the things you get from this portion is um, not only that Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice, we get that imagery, but this, is, this was not a hard one for Saul. I mean, the entire book of Joshua is all about this god made it very clear when talking to moses don't let okay these people you're not going to be okay with guys come and fight you in front of the land you know there's a little back and forth negotiating deal you can spare the ladies and the children and whatever else fine but these people gotta wipe them out don't save anything and even to the point where like you get that imagery you're like okay there's a bad village you go and take it out they said you offer it up as an offering to God, but it's not like you offer it up as like, okay, we're going to have a sacrifice. It's that you wipe it out, and that is the offering to God. Mm-hmm. And um, Achan, in the book of Joshua, does this very thing. He goes and he finds something from, I think, Jericho, brings it home. Buries it under his tent. Buries it under his tent. Yeah. And the only time in the entire battle campaign of Joshua that Israelites die is the next bat the fight next against the fight of Ai, the city of Ai. And the point is that Achan's sin was so bad it cost people around him and that but but Saul doesn't read that Saul doesn't get that point and instead he is manipulated by the people and then justifies it to the point where when Samuel shows up he's like oh I did what you said you're supposed to do and Samuel's like no no you didn't and Saul uh, I I did it I did it and actually Saul goes uh, Samuel goes on to say that rebelliousness is like witchcraft but then follows up by saying, and it's interesting, the word stubborn there, that Rashi, they use a look at the Hebrew word, and it means like double portion. It's like being insistent. No, 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 I really did do what God said, and God really doesn't like that. You know, if you ever had, you know, you're disciplining small children, what did you do? I didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. What did you do? Nothing. It's like, okay, this is... Yes. Now, now the punishment just got worse. <laughs> so I think I got you in <laughs> so, uh, so I mentioned earlier that there, there are some um, who would use the tearing of the high priest garment in the apostolic scriptures as an excuse to say the priesthood would have been dissolved. And, and the same thing happens here in the verse that you've been quoting uh, from... Um, don't tell me where we are. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Shmuel said, Does God have as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of God? Indeed, to obey God is better than a sacrifice to him. And to listen to him is better than the fat of rams offered from a sacrifice. So I think we've all heard, you know, I don't know why you're so into this Torah stuff, but, you know, that's done away with, and... The fact that you actually would want a temple to be rebuilt so there could be animal sacrifices again. <laughs> haven't, you read, the blood. haven't you read the scriptures, right? He doesn't want sacrifice. He wants, you know, obedience. He doesn't want you to do what he said. He wants you to do what he said. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, in this case, Saul's 
argument that he had been somewhat obedient, but was more concerned about the sacrifices. Samuel uses that in this specific instance to make it clear. Right. You're you're twisting it. You're twisting it. That's not how it is. Right. He wants obedience. That includes the sacrifices. But he wanted your obedience to what he exactly told you to Sacrifice do. Sacrifice is the right time. Exactly. This is not the right time. This was not it. And to take it out of context and to say sacrifices are bad, and it's almost ironic that a, a religion that believes that God's commandments have been done away with wants to lean on the obedience side is really ironic. <laughs> it's ironic. Anyway. Yes, sir. The, the interesting thing about what... The, interchange, the conversation between Saul and, and Samuel is Samuel actually gets to the heart when he's talking about obedience better than sacrifice. But then he makes this comment that you were small in your eyes. Yeah, right. So, and and what, he's, what he's showing is he's showing what the real problem was. Imagine when you look at the campaign that's described in, in, in this passage, it's, it's a huge area. It's going all the way from where modern-day Gaza all the way up in there. They're near Carmel now. Mm -hmm. in Gilgal. So they've actually, they've spanned the country. These Amalekites are not in one place. They're all over the place. Right. And so he's finished, he's, he's been super victorious. It's like every, after every, you know, it's like when, when the Detroit Pistons win the NBA championship, we're going to burn everything down. You know, <laughs> They're all feeling great. Everybody, this is awesome. We're, we're the best. And that's actually probably very close to what Saul felt. He felt like he had the latitude because of his success. Hmm. He had the latitude to do what was best in his own eyes, to satisfy what God wanted, but his way. And the irony is, that's not the way Saul started. Saul started off as a tall, big man, and yet very humble. Hmm. In fact, they make he the point how humble he is. He prophesied. I mean, he was so humble. So it's the complete reversal. He's hmm. elevated himself, and he's become proudful. And that's the biggest issue was, is that. When we approach Scripture, this is the problem that we, we all have, and that in, what you're saying is exactly right. We've all done things like this because we approach Scripture in much the same way. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not what it means to me, right. and that's not what it means to me. But if we're very honest and if we're very humble, we'll even say, I can't know what it means. Mm -hmm. Because everything that I read goes through my own experience and my own biases. Mm -hmm. I can't read, even if I can read the Hebrew, it's still not my Hebrew. You know, it's separated by thousands of years. How can I possibly know? I want to do what God says, but how do I know I really am doing what God says? Because it's going through my filter. Right. That's actually the right attitude. Hmm. Now you're being the humble person saying, I don't, I cannot know what this says. I cannot know. It's a only by his elimination. Right, yeah. So I'm not free to choose and do what I want. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid to do what I want. I mm -hmm. really want to know what it says. I'm afraid to do anything else. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the difference between Saul and David. David, we read where David, ex maybe not explicitly, but appears to be disobedient. And yet, God's like okay with it. And the difference is because David was constantly leaning upon God saying, I don't know what's right. I'm small. Read the Psalms. Everything's, I'm small. I'm nothing. I'm, you know, everybody's against me. <laughs> Man after God's own heart. Yeah. So our approach to scripture should be like David's and that we should be fearful of even reading plain words of it being corrupted by our own minds. And to your point, I think it's so funny that Saul, um, he has exactly the wrong humility in this story. Because to your point, you're right, he kind of arrogantly assumes that he can reinterpret God's explicit instructions and match it up with whatever he thinks is best. 
But then the flip side of that, I think that verse he said, when Samuel says, you were small in your own eyes, but don't forget, you're the head of Israel. What does Saul later say? I was afraid of the people. You know, they, they wanted to keep the offerings. I, it wasn't really my idea, but uh, they, you know. And it's like, you're in charge. Why are you doing what they want you to do? Which you're the what, king. Which is what fathers say to their firstborns. When they don't step up. <laughs> this does happen. But as you also like to say to all of the men who have gotten Sorry. married in this room, if you're, the if you're the husband, if you're the father, it's your, your fault. fault. Fix it. It's the point fault. is, when you're in charge, the buck stops with you. Even if it wasn't you that did it, right. you're the one who's ultimately responsible. And it's not to say that you always have to feel guilty about everything, but it does mean that you have to take responsibility because either you didn't teach well enough, or you didn't stick to it well enough, or you weren't consistent well enough, or whatever it might be, but it's something that you did, you did wrong, and that's why your family has failed here. And, and, and the point is that Saul, unfortunately, does the same thing that Adam does at the beginning of the story. Not me, it's the woman you gave me. She did it, she told me, and I ate. And actually, the language here is almost exactly the same. What does Saul say? I, you, Plan will say, you hearken to their voice. It's exactly what we get from Adam and Eve. He hearkened to her voice. So Saul's mistake is he does exactly what is not is false humility. He is weak in his own eyes when it comes to people and defiant towards God. The humility should be reversed. When he's dealing with the people, he should be strong because he's not speaking with his own authority. He's speaking from God's. And when he's speaking to, with God, working with God, he should be humble and realize that it's not his, his mind but God's. Yes, sir? It's interesting you look at... Uh... Saul and his response to why'd you do this is the same as Aaron's. The people made me do it. <laughs> but, yeah. it but it seems like Saul gets punished more severely than Aaron did. And I think I think the reason is because they were they were, Saul was explicitly in charge. Like you're the yeah. king. Yeah. Aaron, he yeah, he's Moses' brother, but did did God put the Did you get did, lifted did Moses, did Moses You were you were you were second choice really. It's like yeah, Moses isn't here, so you're kind of in charge. Yeah, yeah. Aaron didn't necessarily wasn't in charge when Moses was on the mountain. Moses was still technically in charge. Aaron was just kind of one of those people, who were like an elder, yeah. position of authority, kind of, but not really. Yeah. So he doesn't get held as responsible, right? As much as Saul does, and it's just kind of interesting the way God views responsibility. He does, and I think it's a scary thing when you're in charge, but that yeah. means all the more responsibility on you. Um, just wanted to quickly. Oh, go ahead. No, um, I was just thinking on a, on a very simple level, um, like most concepts in. Bible, it's one we can really all relate to, right? right. You give a simple instruction, like, kill the Amalekites, and it doesn't happen. <laughs> and I think everyone can understand the frustration there, you know, when you're in charge, and it's like, it was so clear. I told you what to do, and it hasn't happened. And it's even worse when the person thinks they have. Now, <laughs> and it's not it's not done. It's completely wrong. I made it simple. Yeah. The more complicated, it's unless you see a really nice looking sheet. And let me give you the definition of a nice looking sheet. That's when you complicate things. Wipe everyone out. I mean, Sophia understands that. But you have that. But you're right. And I think that's also a good reminder to us, too, because sometimes we can miss the simple things and overcomplicate them. And then one of the things that Perkei Avot talks about is don't use your wisdom to undo the commandments of God. Mm. You know, I think there is a great goodness in finding the lenient approach to the Torah because, but that is a responsibility on the one in charge because that means that if you were wrong, it's your fault. So you have to take that very seriously. 
but be lean. lenient in, in application of the Torah and others. Definitely. And also as your family, you know, potentially working with your family to work with them and to help them be, be obedient. But at the same time, we don't undo the commandments of God with our wisdom. Oh, well, God, <laughs> obviously. There was, that, there was that whole dream sequence. So, I mean, I can eat pork now. Never mind, like, the 19 times in Leviticus it says not to, you know. But now it's okay because someone had a dream and didn't even realize that what the dream was talking about. But that's what we think it is. So, you know, it's fine. So you, get, it's saying, you can undo it so easily. You have to be very, very guarded against that. Um, I, yes, sir. I'm going to... Are we still on this? Cause yeah. Oh, you can change. Actually, I'm going to transition. Okay. Last point as soon as you're done. One Last thing else, that um, I always think about when I read this particular passage, God's telling the people of Israel to wipe out an entire nation. You say that to any, any American today, they can't cope with that. Because in, in our culture, everyone has the same claim no matter what they've done or or, or what or you know where they come where they come from everyone has the same claim to uh, life liberty life, and the pursuit of happiness exactly and the re- the reality of it and I think it's God is showing us in this specific case is that's not always true now are we the ones who make that decision definitely no, not absolutely Ob- not uh, obviously but we sh- I don't think I think that it's a very um, it's a very uh, yeah, subversive thought to, to get into that, that mode of thinking that we shouldn't get into, which is every, everyone every, every, everyone is is good, and that's not always true. And it's important, I think. The command was hard. The, it was, the command it was given to Saul brutal was a one. hard command. And I think that's another point as we get back to it. was given to Joshua as well. It's a hard command. It's, there's no question it's tough. But it's, it's not like he's the first guy that got this type of commitment. He knew it. He knew but, it all along. And, 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 and for, but I think the important point to point out here is to go back to something we were talking earlier about the clothes. It's like, this was God's command. The only one who has authority to make a decision like this is God. That's right. And he did. And Saul tried to play games with it. And that was the, that was the mistake. Right. Um, interesting, at the end of the passage, it says that Samuel finishes the job. Um, the word split Hewn, depending on you. Um, you know what's amazing with that word? Rashi says it's not used anywhere else in all of Scripture. It doesn't show up anywhere else. This was an unprecedented <laughs> move. Um, the uh, last thing I wanted to get on um, was there's a in our in our apostolic writing portion we looked at. We actually alluded kind of back to this portion. Um, if you notice, talk about sacrifices in Hebrews, and it says we, an altar that they're not allowed to eat from. I know it sounds like this was too good for the priest. But actually, if you were reading in this week's uh, Torah portion, it was an altar you weren't allowed to eat from because it wasn't for eating. You took the items and you burned them outside the camp because they were consumed only for God. Not because it was like, you know, better than what the Levites were allowed to have. It's that that was a specific type of offering. And, and so the writer of Hebrews, being the one who knows it so well, he goes back and says, in this great, this is so cool. Like Yeshua's taken outside the camp that's where he's offered up. It's kind of like the sin offering. I mean, how perfect is that? And just like the fact that he was outside the camp, we've kind of been pushed outside of the temple system by the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, not the rabbinic uh, ancestors, but the um, their opponents, uh, who have shoved out the, the, the followers of Yeshua from the temple system. And so we should go outside the camp with our master. And he ends, and this is, I think is so cool. So rather than being anti Jewish in this text. It's the opposite. He ends by alluding to this week's Tanakh portion by talking about offer up the sacrifices of what? Good deeds. To obey is better than sacrifice. And then he also says offering up the 
words of our lips. Which is he, a rabbinic phrase. Which is a rabbinic phrase because he's quoting, paraphrasing from, I think, Hosea. Is it Hosea? Hosea. Where he says, our lips, are, are, as lips are as bulls. Well, it's so amazing is lips as bulls and good deeds are exactly what the rabbinic authorities would come up with after the temple was destroyed. When God let the Romans come in and wipe the temple out, the, 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 the Sadducees ceased to exist because their entire system was the temple. They had no idea what to do after that. The Pharisee system, which became modern Judaism, they sit back and they go, we have no temple. How are we going to serve God? How can we get forgiveness for our sins? How can we relate to God? Because the entire way that we um, connected at a deep level with God was in the temple. Like That was designed for a reason. It was, a, it was an opportunity to meet with God. How are we going to do that now? And they say, Hosea, our lips are as bulls. Prayer, what we did this morning. Prayer is going to be how we're going to meet with God. And then we're going to do good deeds. Those acts of kindness and charity and whatnot are going to be um, the, the, what we're going to do as, as tikkun, as repentance, uh, along the rest of the way. And so the writer of Hebrews, rather than being anti-Jewish, he is actually um, providing a... He's, he's, he's pressing, pressing it? He's, he's looking ahead. He's actually coming up with the interpretation before Orthodox Judaism they does. Him. He's doing what they did. They got pushed out of the temple. What are they going to do? They can't serve God in the system that they've been doing for the last five, 600 years. So their response, we will serve God by prayer, thanksgiving, and by good deeds. So he is so cool. Like He actually is doing exactly what the Orthodox Jews would he? eventually end up doing. What? How do you know it's a he? Well, it could have been a she, I suppose. But I think mm-hmm. he is more likely. But we don't we don't judge. I don't know. But the point is that um, whoever's right, the author of Hebrews understands this book very, very well. To the point where not only is he, he uh, is the author um, c- uh, connecting with traditions of Judaism prior to that, like my dad was talking about, but actually is so brilliant. He the author is actually interpreting the scriptures the same way Judaism would interpret them later through the lens. Before rabbinic Judaism has even had that lens, exactly. so I think as we, as again, as we, not to keep plugging it, but as we're studying the Apostolic Scriptures in the Zadi class and hopefully at home or whatever else you're doing, um, is is to keep reminding that that this is written by men, Jewish men, uh, with almost no exceptions, if maybe none, depending on how you look at Luke, and those men knew this book, they knew it better than we do, and when they wrote, they wrote through that lens. Mm-hmm. So. Any other last comments? Priscilla is Jewish, so I think. Huh? Priscilla is Jewish. <laughs> there we go. Yes. Jewish. What the, uh, when it refers to, you know, Kishu as the sin offering being taken out of the camp and stuff like that, I, I was telling Morgan recently, it was, I think, last week or the week before that, where Rabbi Jonathan Sachs opened one of his, like, articles with a statement that he kind of claimed that Judaism has always kind of understood from the sages. And it was the statement that, before God creates like a disease, he creates the cure. And before mm-hmm. God creates like a problem, he creates the solution. Mm-hmm. And he gives a couple of examples after that. But I think that it is so cool to see, to, to relate that actually to Yeshua. Because, you know, Peter references the fact that Yeshua existed before the foundations of the world. You know, mm-hmm. Judaism understands like the spirit of Messiah was hovering over the waters before anything was created, you know. And it kind of all relates back to this this idea that Yeshua is the sin offering. Like, before there was even sin, right. like, Hashem already had the fix in mind. And and I think that's a, it's an important thing to remember as, as, like, we study Hebrews to see that that parallel. Absolutely. And then to your point, 
the quote that you're referencing from them is uh, before there is a disease, there's a cure. And they say the Torah is the antidote, antidote for the sinful desires in man. And of course, we know from reading John chapter 1, Yeshua is the, the, living, Torah. Torah. the, the living Torah. Alrighty. Very cool. I know, right? Isn't that great? Roth, I would like you to close us in prayer here. <laughs> Stand up, stand up. I haven't heard your voice enough, and I won't hear it as much as I want to in the future. So. Awesome. I know, Brock appreciate you chiming in. And I thank you for today, for your day. Um, thank you that we can come together and have these discussions and, and really dive into your word and, and find out what it means to us here and now, um, and that we find new things to talk about or to remember every year. Um, I thank you for these people that have been so kind to me and my family. I pray that you continue to bless them, keep them safe, and bring success to all their dealings, and that you would protect us all in this coming week. In Yeshua's name. Amen. 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 Thank you. See all in a few hours. If you, if you come, if you come intending to abide, either choose.